Good morning, everyone. Grateful to be here together with you this morning. I do indeed get to read our sermon text because our person who was scheduled is home not feeling well, so I get uh, to have the privilege of reading our text this morning. So would you uh, read along with me? You can find this passage on page 1537 of the Blue Pew Bibles, otherwise you can find it in your mobile device or a hard copy Bible of your choosing. I invite you to listen as I read God's word. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here with me will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Here ends the reading. I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, that you reveal to us the path of true life and flourishing. God, we're grateful for the ways that you have made yourself known to us and made yourself available to us. We're grateful for your word, for the Bible that gives us understanding of who Jesus is and your workings in history. And we pray that you would teach us this morning. We ask, God, that you would help us to see Jesus clearly this morning. We ask that you would uh, help us to leave here today changed people with a greater awareness of who he is and what he's done for us. Teach us what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Give us the power of your spirit to walk in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Having clear definitions is an important part of life. In our marriage, I am what they call a 60 percenter, which means that when I'm 60% done with a thing, I'm done with the thing, (laughs) right? When I hit 60%, I'm like, yeah, it's basically done. We're pretty much done. Uh, My wife, Dina, if you know her, she is not a 60 percenter. She is a 100 percenter which means that she doesn't move on from the thing she's working on until the thing is done. And so, as you can imagine, our differing definitions of something being finished can easily lead to tension or frustration, mostly on her part. Let's be real about this. (laughs) She will ask uh, something like, did you clean the bathroom? And I will say, yes. And she will say, did you clean the bathtub? And I will say, No, but I clean the bathroom. And she will say, 
then you didn't clean the bathroom. <laughs> because in my mind, I get like most of the way done. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty much done. And I'm on to the next thing. And she's like, no, finish the thing you started. <laughs> right? Uh, one of the things that we've learned over the years is that our brains just work very differently. Uh, and also that definitions like clean and definitions like finished are like really important things to have. Definitions are also really important if you are working as a part of a team. Uh, you know this, if you've ever done like a class project with other students, or if you uh, do anything together in your workplace as a team and you have to collaborate and work together or anything like this, uh, definitions are important because we all come to find out sooner or later that someone should do that means it's probably not going to get done and we're all going to be angry at the end of this process. <laughs> so having a clear definition about like what the end goal of the project is and what success looks like and having a clear definition of who's supposed to do the things is a really important part of working as a part of a team. Clear definitions are important for many reasons, but in part because they help us know what exactly it is that we are getting ourselves into, Right? Raise your hand if you have ever signed a lease, if you've ever uh, signed a mortgage or taken out a loan. Raise your hand if you have ever opened up a bank account of any kind. Raise your hand if you have even clicked the button to update the software on your computer or phone, and there's that little box that comes up and it has all the licensing agreements, and you're like... Yes, I've read and understand these, even though you totally didn't read any of it. <laughs> because no one, like this morning, the computer for our visuals is like, you should update your software. And I had to click the button without reading any of it, saying, I read the terms and agreements, right? When you click those things, what those definitions, what those terms are, is you are agreeing to a relationship that's been clearly defined and tediously defined in a list of terms that most of the time we just simply don't read. The definition laid out in those terms tells you exactly what it is that you're getting yourself into as you enter that relationship together. So these definitions in life are really important for a lot of different reasons, but because they help us know what exactly we are getting ourselves into. We've been in a series in the book of Mark where we've been looking at the life of Jesus and we've been thinking about the question, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And one of the other questions that is, uh, that's revealed to us in the book of Mark is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And this morning, as we look at these words of Jesus that you heard read just a moment ago, what we get is from the mouth of Jesus himself, we get a definition of what it means to follow him. He tells us exactly what it means to be a disciple. He tells us exactly what the definition is of someone who is his follower. And this definition that he gives us, it helps us know what it is we're getting ourselves into when we follow Jesus. And it also helps us know how to course correct when we find ourselves getting off track. So we're going to look at this definition that Jesus lays out here of what discipleship is. And we see that Jesus defines discipleship by giving us a list of three requirements of anyone and everyone who would follow him. Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves take up the cross, and follow me. And so we're going to think about those three aspects of discipleship to Jesus this morning. So the first requirement that Jesus lays out here of someone who is his disciple or his apprentice or his follower is that a person must deny themselves. Okay, Jesus wastes like no time here getting to the point. 
He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just comes right out and tells us, this is what it means to follow me. If you were going to be my apprentice, you have to deny yourself. And of course, the question then is like, well, what in the world does that even mean? (laughs) That could mean a lot of different things. And I think this is one of those times where it's important for us, before we talk about what it is meaning, I think it's important for us to just begin by saying what Jesus is not talking about here, okay? So when Jesus says that if you are going to be my apprentice, you must deny yourself, he is not calling us to some kind of life of monasticism. He's not calling us to a life of asceticism. He's not calling us to what you could call a life of pleasure celibacy. He's not calling us to renounce things that would bring us enjoyment or bring us pleasure or bring us fun in life. He's not saying that we should seek after and pursue a life of difficulty or pain or suffering as if those things are a good in and of themselves. And we know this is true because as we look at the Bible, we see that God created us purposefully as embodied creatures. And then God purposefully put us in his good world that is filled with all sorts of wonderful things for us to experience. Good food and good drink and pleasures and entertainment and experiences and relationships and beautiful things to look at. God has created us as embodied people in a material world. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's not talking about us like saying, I'm not going to enjoy any of God's good world. That's what God created us for, in part, is to enjoy his good world. So Jesus is not calling us to deny pleasure itself. He's not calling us to deny the enjoyment of God's good world. He's calling us to deny ourselves. And of course, the question then, we come back to, well, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) That we're supposed to deny ourselves. To deny ourselves means to fully surrender the part of us that wants to remain in control. That's what it means to deny ourselves. We could put it like this. We give up control of our lives. That's what Jesus means when he says that we are to deny ourselves. What it means is we give up control of our life. What the Bible teaches is that at the core of what is wrong with our own lives, what's at the core of what is wrong with our world as we see it and experience it, is that we have seized control. Right? This, is, this is like the essence of the first sin that we read about in Genesis 3, where our first parents chose to do what was right in their own eyes instead of doing what was right in God's eyes. They chose to do what was right in their eyes instead of following the instruction of the Lord. And so they seized control. And as they did so, there was a poison that was unleashed into our world. And we have been repeating the exact same sin over and over and over and over and over again throughout history. In fact, every act of sin, every act of rebellion against God's design and his, uh, the way that he wants us to live, every single act of idolatry is nothing more than a seizing of control. It's a doing what is right in our own eyes instead of following the instruction of the Lord. Apart from God's intervention, we live with a stubbornly rooted God independence. That's what lives inside of us. Unless God intervenes and gives us new hearts, we live with a God independence. Another way of saying it is that we live with a God-like self-sufficiency. 
We'd never say it like this out loud anyways. We probably wouldn't express it in these terms. But what this means is that every single one of us says, you know, uh, I look at my life and I look at my decisions and, you know, I might listen to God's advice. I might, you know, look to him as an advisor in my life and look to what the Bible says. And, you know, if I like what God says, if I like his advice, I'll take it. But at the end of the day, I'm the one who's got final say over my finances, over my body, over my sexuality, over my uh, speech, over my decisions and, and the course of my life. You know, I may look to God as some sort of advisor who's there, you know, and I'll take or leave his advice if I want to. But at the end of the day, I'm the one who's calling the shots in my life. That's what it looks like to live with this sort of uh, God independence. And what Jesus is saying here is he lays out this definition of discipleship and tells us these requirements is he says that for us to follow Jesus, if we are going to be his apprentices, that God independence inside of us must die. That God-like self-sufficiency that lives inside of us, we have to put that to death. And so Jesus tells us, we must deny ourselves. Anyone who would follow me must give up control of their life. Now, when we hear language of giving up control, when we hear language of denying ourselves, uh, our natural instinct is to think that we are losing something, right? The reality is that denying ourselves will not lead to a life of less, but a life of more. Denying ourselves and giving up control of our life to our creator is not going to lead to a life of less, less enjoyment, less pleasure, less fun, less flourishing. No, the opposite is true. That only when we give our lives to our creator can we actually truly live the way that we are designed to live. Listen to what Jesus says here. He says in verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Seems kind of backwards. If you want to find your life, the only way you do it is by giving up the life that you have. That's what Jesus says here. Right? The reason why we choose to seize control or uh, choose not to give up control of our life is because deep down we actually believe the same lie that was there in the Garden of Eden. That is, God is holding back on me. God doesn't have my best interest in mind. God doesn't care about me. And so because we believe that lie, we seize control and we take things into our own hands. But what we know is that his ways always lead to our flourishing. His ways always lead to life and enjoyment. And so what it means to give up our life is, is we recognize, yes, in a way there's something we lose, but at the end of the day, we're not losing anything. We're actually gaining more life by, than we would if we were to hold on and seize control of our lives. We give up control of our lives and we gain God himself in return. It's a pretty good trade, isn't it? <laughs> so what Jesus says here is that anyone who wants to be his follower must deny themselves, meaning we must give up control of our life. He goes on to say, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. This sounds about as fun as denying yourself, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, boy, this definition just keeps getting better the more we look at it, doesn't it? As we think about what it means to uh, take up our cross, there's two words that I think uh, are going to help us really sort of wrap our minds around what that means. 
uh, the words are identification and suffering. Identification and suffering. At this point, Jesus has not yet revealed to his disciples the exact way that he's going to die. Okay, he's told them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. But he hasn't told them, I'm going to be executed on a Roman cross. So, at least in Mark's telling of these events, the disciples and the crowds who are here don't know that detail yet. And so Jesus says here, you've got to take up your cross. In, in that period, Jewish executions were typically carried out by stoning. So they would literally throw rocks at you until you were dead. Which is like a miserable way to die, right? Uh, so that was the way that the Jewish executions would typically take place. Roman executions... Uh, took a variety of different forms, all of which were like just as bad as being stoned to death. Sometimes you would be burned alive. Sometimes you'd be poisoned. Sometimes you'd be beheaded. Sometimes you would be thrown into uh, the animals, like in the, in the Colosseum type environments, where you'd be killed for sport. And people would cheer as you're ripped apart by animals. Okay, so there's all sorts of awful ways to die and that executions were done in the Roman world. In one of those ways, there was probably maybe the most awful was crucifixion. Crucifixion was uh, reserved mainly for three types of people. Those people who were slaves, those who were the worst criminals, and those who were believed to be cursed. That's who was executed through crucifixion. And when you were crucified, you would carry the crossbar of the cross on the way to your death. So unlike what you sometimes see in the movies where it's like, you know, someone's got the, you know, the entire cross, including the, including the T and the, you know, vertical part, they're carrying the whole thing, dragging it along. That's not how it happened. They would take the crossbar and you would have to carry this crossbar on your shoulders on the way to your death and they would parade you through public places. And so as you were walking on the way to your own death, carrying that crossbar was not only painful and it was not only humiliating, it was a sign of your identity. It was a marker of your identity that you are this kind of person. You are a slave, a criminal, or cursed, or some combination of all three of those things. It's an awful, miserable way to die. Not only was the cross a symbol of identification, carrying that crossbar identified you as that type of person. More than being an identity marker, the cross was a torture device. It was designed to kill in the most shameful and degrading and dehumanizing and painful way possible. When you were executed through crucifixion, you were hung naked for everyone to walk by and to see you in your most vulnerable state as you hung there dying. Crucifixion was intentionally designed to be a long process meaning many times it took days for a person to die because you would be hanging there, sometimes with nails through your wrists like we see in the movies. Sometimes they would just uh, tie you up there, but it would take days for you to die because it would take you know, two or three days for you to finally run out of strength to push yourself up and breathe. And so you'd die of asphyxiation. You'd suffocate. Or you'd die because of exposure to the elements. Or you would die because you simply haven't had water in three or four days and your body just gives out. So it was an awful, terrible form of execution that was designed to be, it was designed to inflict maximum pain and humiliation on the person who was being crucified. And so you've got this horrible way of dying that's shameful and it's degrading 
and it's like the worst thing you can think of. And Jesus turns to those who are his followers and saying, if you want to be my apprentice, it is a requirement of you that you take up your cross. And at this point, again, the disciples don't exactly, you know, the disciples and the crowds who are there, they don't exactly know the, the full meaning of what Jesus is saying when he says, take up your cross. But over the course of the book of Mark, as we see the story unfold, we see that taking up our cross means identifying with Jesus on the path of suffering. Taking up our cross means identifying with Jesus on the path of suffering. Now, taking up our cross, thankfully, does not mean that if you are really a follower of Jesus, you will be killed by crucifixion, okay? Thankfully, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that it's a guarantee that you'll die as a martyr. It doesn't mean that you will be, you know, killed as a martyr in this particular way. What it does mean is that we identify with Jesus on the path of suffering. It means we follow Jesus wherever he leads, even into suffering and death. Think about this from the perspective of the original hearers of the book of Mark. So the book of Mark was written in the second half of the first century to Christians who were Roman followers of Jesus. And they were living under fierce persecution under the reign of Emperor Nero, who hated followers of Jesus, blamed them for everything that was wrong in the world and everything that was wrong in their culture, blamed them for natural disasters that would take place and fires that broke out. Oh, it's the Christians. And so there was fierce persecution against the Christians. They were literally thrown to the animals and torn apart as people watched and cheered. These followers of Jesus were also, in many cases, crucified because they, you know, it, it was, a, it was a, a way of shaming them and saying, you know, like this Messiah that you, that you worship, this man that you've given your life to, he suffered this way, so we're going to make you die this way too. And it was a way of shaming them publicly, right? And so these Roman followers of Jesus, as they experience this incredible fierce persecution, when, when they read Jesus's words that to be his disciple means to take up your cross, to carry your cross, they understood this is not like a hypothetical thing that Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying, you know, hypothetically, you know, you have to, it's going to be really, really hard. No, they understood being a follower of Jesus might literally lead to me being crucified on a cross like Jesus was. And so there may come a point in my life where because I'm a follower of Jesus, I have to follow him even into suffering and even into death, this most awful, excruciating kind of death on the cross. So following Jesus, for them, as well as for us, means identifying with Jesus on the path of suffering. It means being willing to give up anything and everything to follow him. It means we identify with him on the path of suffering. And the reason that we do this, the reason that we are willing to follow Jesus even on that path of suffering the reason that we are willing to give up anything and everything in order to follow him is because he gave everything for us. The reality is that with or without Jesus, our lives are filled with all kinds of different pains and sufferings and difficulties. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to suffer. If you're not a follower of Jesus, 
you're also going to suffer. There's no one who's like outside of those two categories. Every single person, with or without Jesus, is going to suffer. And the good news about Jesus is that God did not leave us alone in our suffering. He saw us in our desperate condition. And his heart overflowed with compassion to the point of sending his son to suffer and to die. And Jesus, who is the second member of the Trinity, God himself willingly took on human flesh and joined us and experienced all the brokenness of our world. And not just like theoretically, but he experienced the worst that the world had to offer. And he allowed himself to be executed in this most awful, terrible way for us. And he led the way in that. So what it means is that we see that Jesus suffered and died for us. And we say, because he was willing to do that for me, I'm willing to give up anything and everything to follow him. Even if it means I get to walk headlong into suffering, even if it means I'm going to experience tremendous amounts of difficulty or opposition, I'm going to follow him anyways because he gave his life for me. And I know that when I give up my life, I gain something better in return. I get God himself. So this is what it means for us to take up our cross is we identify with Jesus on the path of suffering. So, the requirements to follow Jesus, we give up control of our life. We identify with Jesus on the path of suffering. And lastly, Jesus says, you must not just deny yourself, take up your cross. You must also follow me. Now, there's a lot of scholars that notice uh, that Jesus says something here that sounds a little bit circular. Uh, Our translations in the NIV say, whoever wants to be my disciple. Uh, A more literal translation, and some of you may have this in your Bibles, a more literal translation is, if someone would desire to come after me, if someone would desire to follow me, Jesus says, they must follow me. You you see the circular nature of this, right? If someone wants to follow me, well, what do you got to do? You got to follow me. And it's like, well, you could have saved some space by just not including that because it's obvious, it's self-evident, right? It seems to us anyways, when we read Jesus saying, if you want to be my follower, you must follow me. It's like, okay, well, that's sort of redundant. You know, sort of unnecessary to say that, but it's not. It's not. And the reason is because every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus, we need to be constantly reminded that following Jesus means following the way of Jesus, right? We need to be reminded all the time that following Jesus means following the way of Jesus. This is what it means. Following Jesus means bringing all of life into alignment with the way of Jesus. That's what it means to follow him. It's not a one-time action. It's not a once and you're done It is a continual life process for all of these of giving up control of our life, of identifying with Jesus, walking with him, even on the path of suffering and difficulty, and bringing all of life into alignment with the way of Jesus, which includes our thoughts and our emotions and our actions and our motivations and all of that, every part of who we are. This means that we look at Jesus and we see the way that he spoke, We see the way that he acted. We see the way that he loved people. We see the way that he dignified and honored people with his words and with his actions. We see the way that Jesus cared about what was both just 
and what was righteous. We see that Jesus wept over the brokenness of sin in the world. We see that Jesus was willing to confront in ways that were appropriate for that situation, like the religious leaders and people who were damaging, doing harm to the world through their religious actions. Jesus was very willing to confront that. We see that Jesus led people towards the kingdom of God and and on and on and on so much more. And so what it means to align ourselves with the way of Jesus is we look at Jesus' life, we see him doing all these things, and we say, I want my life to look like that. Not in some weird, like, wooden, sort of like, I'm just going to, like, mimic what Jesus did in the Bible. But a, I see what Jesus' life was like. I see what kind of person he was. I, I, I see his character, and I want to be the kind of person Jesus was. And so we bring all of life into alignment with the way of Jesus. Of course, it is good to have and care about right doctrine. It is good to have and to care about right beliefs. And if you've been around Elmwood for longer than about 10 minutes, you know that this is true of us. Uh, We care about good theology. We're not afraid to talk about the deep things of God and and really look at the Bible in depth here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. Uh, It is good to have and to care about right doctrine And at the very same time, having right doctrine is not enough. This is what Jesus says. You must follow me. Right? The danger for us, especially for those of us who live in in an environment where we have an embarrassment of resources and tools to help us understand what the Bible says and help us understand what it means to follow Jesus. We have more resources than any generation has had in the history of the world to help us know and follow Jesus. And the danger is that we would be a theologically correct and functionally disobedient people. Right? That's the danger, is that we would know all... We, we would, uh, our knowledge of God would so far outpace our obedience to God. We'd be a whole bunch of people who know all sorts of stuff about the Bible, and it's good, and it's right, and we should pursue that. We can be those kinds of people who live in disobedience and don't actually follow the way of Jesus. And Jesus says, that's not what it means to be my apprentice. Being an apprentice of Jesus does not mean that we can just look at the historic creeds of the faith. You know, we can look at the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed and all the creeds. And we can look to even, you know, uh, different denominational doctrinal statements. And we can say, yeah, you know, I, I check all the boxes. I believe all this stuff. I agree with all this right doctrine. And Jesus says, that's not what it means to follow me. If you believe all of those right things and your life is not being actively and continually changed by those things you believe, Jesus says, you are not actually living as my apprentice. Because following the way of Jesus means following the way of Jesus, (laughs) right? Again, those doctrines, those beliefs, those things are super important. And we care about those because those things do influence the way that we live in the world. So we must care about good doctrine, and we cannot care about just good doctrine. Following the way of Jesus means following the way of Jesus. So these are the requirements Jesus lays out for us. If you want to be my disciple, what it means is you give up control of your life. It means that you identify with Jesus on the path of suffering. And it means that you bring all of your life, every nook and cranny of your life, into alignment with the way of Jesus. The question this morning 
for each of us is, which of these most lands with you today? There's probably one of these that sort of sticks out as like, yeah, that's kind of, you know, poking me in the eye a little bit. Which one of those do you find uh, most challenging or most convicting for you? Maybe it's uh, giving up control of your life. Maybe uh, there are situations or there are people or there are others in your life, other things that you're just like, man, I, I really struggle to like give up controlling people and situations in my life. Maybe it's something different than that. Maybe there's an area of your life that you have been intentionally withholding from God saying, you know, you can, you can have free reign in this area of my life, but like, just don't touch my finances or my sexuality or whatever it may be. So maybe there's an area where you're just kind of like holding God at arm's length saying like, you know, you can touch all this stuff. Just don't touch this. This is too important to me. It's too difficult. It's too hard. I don't want to go there. And so maybe for some of you, maybe God is wanting to uh, stir some things inside of you and help you release grip of those things. For some of you, uh, maybe that you look at identifying with Jesus in the path of suffering. And there's situations in your life that you're experiencing. There's difficulties, there's pains, there's disappointments. There's all sorts of stuff. And you're just like wrestling with the nature and the character of God and your experience. And if you're honest, uh, sometimes your experiences cause you to question God's goodness, cause you to uh, wonder. Maybe it breeds like some, uh, what do you call it? Uh, It breeds some like... Uh, frustration or resentment inside of you towards God because of what you're experiencing. And you're like, man, if God really was good, this wouldn't be happening or these kind of things. And maybe you need to like walk with Jesus on the path of suffering. Maybe for some of you, it is related to bringing all of life into alignment with the way of Jesus. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, you know, uh, I think I'm like just been just kind of generally apathetic. You know, I I look at my life and I'm like, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus and I believe all the things and I come to church and I, you know, whatever. But like, I don't feel like I live with like a whole lot of urgency for a whole lot other than like going through the religious motions on a weekly basis. And so uh, for each of you, there might be different things in here that God is stirring up inside of you. And so my encouragement for you is just to, is to ponder, to think about, and maybe even to journal about this week or to talk to someone about which of these is like really standing out to you as like, okay, maybe God wants to do something in this area of my life. And as you have the answer to that, all of us are going to have an answer of which of those is most prominent in our life. And it's important that as we identify those areas where we don't line up with Jesus's definition of discipleship, it's important that we come to the communion table because it's here that we are reminded that we are not loved and accepted because of our performance. We are not loved and accepted because we do enough. We've, you know, it's like, well, there's a certain threshold of giving up control of your life that you have to have for God to love you. Or any of these other areas. We don't receive love from God because of the things that we've done. He loves us, and therefore, we seek to give up control of our life. We say, God, I want for you to be the one who's guiding and directing my life. And we could go through each of these and, and, and talk about that as well. 
But we come to the communion table and we're reminded both of our brokenness and our idolatry, as well as the fact that we don't come here today in our own strength. God has made a way for us. And so we come and we receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And it reminds us that our identity in Jesus is secure and that everything we do to walk out living life in the way of Jesus is done as a joyful response to what God has already done. It's not because we're trying to earn God's love or his favor or his acceptance. And so we get to be reminded of that good news this morning as we come to the communion table. So would you take just a few moments? I'm going to leave a little bit of space for reflection, for confession. If there's something uh, in any of this that you wanted to spend some time processing or confessing to the Lord, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silence and confession, and then we will come to the communion table together.